This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring the best live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I run the Talks and Ideas program. We're busy getting ready for All About Women in 2018, and we'll have plenty of new talks to share with you very soon. But until then, we're revisiting some topical presentations from Talks and Ideas events gone by. Naomi Klein has long been a warrior for our climate. In this talk from the Festival of Dangerous Ideas in 2015, she argues that our complicity in capitalism is just as responsible for the destruction of our planet as big business and government. Naomi Klein is with Anne Mossop on the concert hall stage. As you know, Naomi Klein is an author, activist, filmmaker, author of No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate, and her films include The Take and, of course, the forthcoming documentary, This Changes Everything. This outline doesn't do justice to Naomi's career. She has a depth of engagement with the most important issues of our time, and the impact of her analysis and her advocacy are substantial. You don't need me to tell you about that impact because you have the good fortune of seeing her today. Her dangerous ideas are around capitalism and the climate. Her argument that we haven't done what we should do to lower emissions because of the intractable conflict with the dominant and controlling ideology of regulated capitalism, and that a broader movement of social and political liberation is needed before we are going to be able to do what we need to do. Naomi argues that this, of course, is not a dangerous idea, that these are the kind of discussions and ideas that would lead us all to safety. But her ideas are very dangerous to the status quo, to those who hold power, to the political and economic elite, and those who benefit from the extractive industries around the world. Her ideas also challenge our own feelings as individuals and communities, our feelings of powerlessness our apathy or confusion. And she challenges us by asking all of us to take hold of the power that we have to act and asking all of us to rise to the occasion and to answer the call of history. Please join me in welcoming Naomi Klein. Thank you so much, Anne. And everybody at FODI and the Sydney Opera House, my publisher, Penguin, uh, all the other amazing speakers who are part of this festival. Um, And I want to thank you for your acknowledgement of country. Out of respect, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, past and present, here in Sydney, and the elders of the over 500 Aboriginal nations across Australia, where I'm told 5,000 more people are joining us via live stream. Oh my God. (laughs) When British colonizers first came to this land, they treated it as if these nations did not exist, as if it were empty land, unsettled, terra nullius. These early settlers encountered people, of course, it's in all the colonial records, but the humanity of those people and the ancient complex culture that they had built was not recognized under law. Humanity nullified. That highly profitable refusal to see the full humanity of others 
made possible by crude theories of racial superiority, is the foundational sin of your country as it is of mine. In Canada, where I come from, we often sign treaties, but we broke them with impunity, so it's really not all that different. If our respective nations had truly learned from the violence of our past, done the hard work of change, then perhaps it would be adequate to acknowledge, as we have today, what our ancestors failed to do, that we are on Indigenous lands, and then we could swiftly move on to other things. But unfortunately, I fear that we have not learned from that foundational sin. If anything, it feels like the categories of nullified humans is expanding all the time, and that racism still plays a central enabling role. Indigenous people are still being disappeared into your country's prisons and my country's at shockingly high rates. Indigenous land rights are still being denied through various forms of legal trickery to make way for mining and drilling that will render those lands unrecognizable. And in the midst of the global refugee crisis, both of our governments and many others' highly restrictive immigration policies are effectively nullifying the humanity of whole categories of people, denying them safe haven from wars in which our states are often directly complicit, conflicts like the Syrian one that have been badly exacerbated by drought linked to climate change. And of course, we are also disproportionately complicit in that too. We tell ourselves stories to make all of this seem okay, as our ancestors did. We tell ourselves perhaps that migrants from conflict zones are dangerous to us, whether because they will steal our jobs or blow us up. But really, we are part of a system doing the same thing, the same old thing, denying the full humanity of others, and with that humanity, their full human rights, refusing to share our wealth ill-gotten as it may be. This week, all Canadians have been confronted with the unbearable truth that Island Kurdi, the three-year-old boy whose tiny drowned body has become the tragic symbol of this moral crisis, should by all rights be living safely in Vancouver right now. Instead, he, his brother, and his mother all died off the Kurdish coast. Island's aunt, who lives in Canada, had been trying to sponsor members of her. Um, she'd been trying to sponsor members of her family to come as refugees. But the increasingly hostile bureaucratic process that my country has failed her and failed her family. Desperate and with Canada unwelcoming, the family decided to trust their fates to that precarious plastic boat and those fake life jackets. Our government has closed the door on so many others, accepting 10,000 fewer Syrian refugees than they had promised. But Canadians have never before been so directly confronted with visual evidence of the true costs of our government's policy. Politicians are good at that kind of thing, hiding the human costs 
of policy. Here, I believe you call it Operation Sovereign Borders. That policy that sees your Navy ruthlessly intercept boats of migrants, bringing them to detention facilities far from prying eyes, run by private companies, proving that no misery is too great to turn into a profit-making opportunity. Terrible things happen in those camps, but workers sign gag orders and cameras are judiciously kept out, all of which helps prevent the consciences of good people from being shocked, as they have been this week, by the image of Alain Curdy's small body on that beach. So obscure are the camps that Australian migrant rights advocates have started calling them black sites. It speaks to the reality that people are being willfully disappeared again not for being terrorists, as the U.S. has done with its black sites during the so-called War on Terror, but simply because their need is inconvenient. Tony Abbott has been in the news a lot this week marketing his black sites as a humane solution for Europe. Away says your prime minister to, quote, keep people safe. Yes, that's right. Prison camps for safety from the man who brought you coal, good for humanity. <laughs> Up is down, war is peace. And while I'm on the topic of oxymorons, I would be remiss if I did not mention the Ethics Center, co-curator of this wonderful festival. On its board, retired Major General James Mullen, one of the main architects of the sovereign border policy, a policy not just devoid of ethics by any rational standard, but as the New York Times put a couple of days ago, inhumane, brutal, and of dubious legality. Though he is a board member, the Ethics Center does not share Mullen's views on immigration, I'm told, nor does it fund this festival. Still, given the association, a bunch of us speakers recently issued a statement strongly separating ourselves from the immigration policies Mullen has helped introduce in Australia, particularly because he's actively trying to export those policies to Europe. This is the festival of dangerous ideas, sure, and we are all very risque. But it's time to say that some ideas are just too damn dangerous, especially when those ideas are acted out on real bodies in the real world, which makes them more than ideas. It makes them international crimes. Now. Our statement, which was signed by Johan Hari, uh, Lori Penny, Tarek Ali, John Ronson, it wasn't very polite, nor, as you may have gathered, is what I'm doing right now. <laughs> and I'm sorry, Anne, I adore you. Biting the hand and all of that. And I'm a Canadian, so this hurts me. We're, we are polite. <laughs> we writers were scolded a little bit told by the head of the Ethics Center that we should have raised our concerns privately first, and perhaps we should have, only that's part of the problem, isn't it? All of this going on in the shadows, out of the public glare, out of sight, out of mind, all of this being polite about ideas that just have no place in polite company.
Now, a few of you are thinking, this is not what I came here for. <laughs> I came here to hear about the book, about how capitalism is waging war on life on Earth. Something relaxing, not so upsetting. <laughs> Dangerous ideas are supposed to be fun. Well, <laughs> before anyone goes to the box office demanding a refund for your undelivered anti-capitalism, let me shift to the connection between capitalism and the very live debates about migrant rights and climate change. Because there is a bright line connecting the degradation in the way we treat human beings, whether they are refugees from Syria trying desperately to reach Greece, or whether they're Greek citizens suffering under unending attacks to their standard of living, bloodlessly called austerity, and the degradation of the planetary systems on which all of life depends. Indeed, Greece is told that the way to get out of debt is to drill for oil and gas in the Ionian and Aegean seas. The same forces, the same logic are behind all of these attacks on life. Because a culture that places so little value on human beings that it allows them to be thrown to the waves, is also going to allow poor people's countries to disappear beneath the waves because that is a threat to today's profits. And then that same system will figure out how to profit from that misery tomorrow. That is what our current system is doing. And it's why I make the argument that climate change is not just about carbon pollution. It's the collision between carbon pollution and a toxic ideology of market fundamentalism that has made it impossible for our shackled leaders to respond while they simultaneously make the problem so much worse. It's how Barack Obama can say all the right things about climate change as he visits the Arctic and simultaneously open it to Shell's Arctic drilling. So. We suffer from this case of bad timing, and you see it so clearly here in Australia um, under your government, so in the grips of this ideological project, slashing the taxes that tax the polluters to pay for us to try to get off fossil fuels, whether the carbon tax or the mining tax, the dismantling of environmental laws, the totally inadequate, inadequate emission reduction targets, which according to all experts, won't mean that because there's no serious regulation making sure that they will be met. This is the collision, and the result is not just hotter weather. It's a meaner, crueler society, and that is the connection with what we're seeing with the refugee crisis, and that's why we have to challenge this system head-on. Um, you know, I make the argument in the book that we need a movement of movements and we need to build coalitions across uh, traditional divisions. We need uh, environmentalists working with trade unions and farmers with indigenous people. And just to prove how diverse this movement has to be, I'm going to quote the Pope, which is a bit odd for a secular Jewish feminist. Now, <laughs> I, I don't agree with every word in his historic encyclical on climate change, but 
I would urge everyone to read this remarkable document because it is truly a revolutionary meditation on these overlapping crises and, uh, crises and how they intersect. And it's also really quite beautiful. And several themes come up again and again in the encyclical. And one of them is, I think, particularly relevant to these themes that I've been talking about and that so many of us are struggling with right now. There is a term that is used five times in the encyclical, and that term is throwaway culture. Essentially, it refers to the process that systematically turns the precious into trash, that writes off people and places as if they do not matter. And he says that is that the same process that is turning the planet into, in the very memorable phrase, most quoted phrase of the encyclical, turning the planet into an immense pile of filth. Um, the throwaway culture is based on the core idea that we can take what we want and toss away the rest. And just because we can't see it, we convince ourselves that it doesn't really exist. There are a lot of places that typify this logic, a lot of sacrifice zones out there, but there's one place more than any I've ever studied that brings these expressions of the throwaway culture together. And I think if we look at it, it really clarifies how many fronts we need to work on and the need for system change. And the place I'm referring to is one that most people in the world have never heard of, but it's a place Australians know quite a lot about. That place is Nauru. Uh, I write about it in, in This Changes Everything, but I rarely speak about it. I've never lectured about it uh, before, in part because it feels too complicated to explain. Um, but I thought I would, I would do, it, do it today. I thought I would um, talk a little bit about that section in the book. So I'm just going to read a very abridged version, if you don't mind. For thousands of years, Nauruans lived on the surface of their island, sustaining themselves on fish and fowl. That began to change when a colonial officer picked up a rock that was later discovered to be made of almost pure phosphate of lime. A German-British firm began mining, later replaced by a British-Australian-New Zealand venture. Nauru started developing at record speed. The catch was that it was simultaneously disappearing. By the 1960s, Nauru still looked nice enough when approached from the sea, but it was a mirage. Behind the narrow fringe of coconut palms circling the coast lay a ravaged interior. Seen from above, the forest and topsoil of the Oval Island were being voraciously stripped away the phosphate mined down to the island's sharply protruding bones, leaving behind a forest of ghostly coral totems. With the center now uninhabitable and largely infertile, life on Nauru unfolded along that thin coastal strip. Now, none of this came as a surprise. Indeed, Nauru's successive waves of colonizers had a simple plan for the country. They would keep mining phosphate until the island was an empty shell. Quote, when the phosphate supply is exhausted in 30 to 40 years' time, the experts predict that the estimated population will not be able to live on this pleasant little island, and now ruined council members said rather stiffly in a 60s-era black-and-white video produced by the Australian government. Nauru, in other words, was designed as a disposable country. 
It's not that these extractive companies or the Australian government had anything against the place, no genocidal intent per se. It's just that one dead island that a few, pe that few people knew existed seemed like an acceptable sacrifice to make in the name of progress. Later, Nauru became the target of a more virtual form of extraction. In the 1990s, aided greatly by the wave of financial deregulation unleashed in this period, the island became a prime money laundering haven. For a time, Nauru was the home to roughly 400 phantom banks that were utterly unencumbered by monitoring, oversight, taxes, regulation, or bricks and mortar. They did not actually exist. These schemes have since caught up with Nauru too, and now the country faces a double bankruptcy. With 90% of the island depleted from mining, it faces ecological bankruptcy. With a debt of at least 800 million, Nauru faces financial bankruptcy as well. But these are not Nauru's only problems. It now turns out that the island nation is highly vulnerable to climate change. Speaking to the 1997 UN conference that adopted the Kyoto Protocol, Nauru's then president very evocatively described an image that I've never been able to get out of my head. He says, we are trapped, a wasteland at our back and to our front, a terrifying rising flood of biblical proportions. Few places on earth embody the suicidal results of building our economies on polluting extraction more graphically than Nauru. Thanks to its mining of phosphate, Nauru has spent the last century disappearing from the inside out now, thanks to our collective mining of fossil fuels, it is disappearing from the outside in. Nauru is a warning. For a couple of hundred years, we have been telling ourselves that we can dig the midnight black remains of other life forms out of the bowels of the earth, burn them in massive quantities, and that the airborne particles and gases released in the atmosphere, because we can't see them, will have no effect whatsoever. Or if they do, We'll just invent something to fix it, as we humans always have. We tell ourselves all kinds of similarly implausible, no consequences stories all the time about how we can ravage the world and suffer no adverse effects. Indeed, we are always surprised when it turns out otherwise. We extract and do not replenish and wonder where the fish have disappeared and why the soil requires ever more inputs like phosphate to stay fertile. We occupy countries and arm their militias and then wonder why they hate us. We drive down wages, ship jobs overseas, destroy worker protections, hollow out local economies, then wonder why people can't afford to shop as much as they used to. We offer those failed shoppers cheap credit instead of steady jobs and then wonder why no one saw that system being so prone to collapse. At every stage, our actions are marked by a lack of respect for the powers we are unleashing a certainty or at least a hope that the nature we have turned into gar garbage and the people we treat like garbage will not come back to haunt us. And Nauru knows all about this because in the past decade it has become a dumping ground for an, of another sort. In an effort to raise much needed revenue, as you all know, it is an offshore refugee detention center for the government of Australia. There are great efforts that go into keeping images from getting out of Nauru, but they make it out nonetheless. Horrifying photographs of refugees who have shown that, sewn their mouths shut, 
using paper clips as needles. Mark Isaacs, a former Salvation Army employee who worked there, has said that Nauru is all about taking resilient men and grinding them into dust. On an island that itself was systematically ground into dust, it's a harrowing image. As harrowing as enlisting the people who could very well be the climate refugees of tomorrow to play warden to the political and economic and war refugees of today. Reviewing this island's painful history, it strikes me that so much of what has gone on there has to do with this idea of the middle of nowhere, this idea that we can just throw away without consequences. So if Nauru is what the Pope calls a throwaway culture, and if that is the problem, then the task is clear, to create a culture of caretaking in which no one and nowhere is thrown away, in which the inherent value of people and all of life is foundational. Now, what would such a society look like? What would it mean to fight climate change, social ex exclusion, economic injustice, racism, gender inequality, all at the same time? What would intersectional, that most trendy of phrases, mean if it was actually about solutions, not just problems? It would mean recognizing that we have so many crises in front of us that we actually can't afford the time to fix them sequentially. At this late stage, baby steps won't do. Steps in the right direction won't do. What we need to do is leap to the next economy, to the next system now. And since the book came out, I've been part... <laughs> I've been really lucky since um, This Changes Everything came out one year ago, almost exactly, uh, to be part of these amazing conversations in different uh, countries, particularly in my own country, Canada, but also in the US, uh, a little bit in Europe, about what that leap to the next economy would look like. I've been in rooms filled with incredible activists, including here in Australia over the past 10 days, brainstorming um, about if we all came together, if we stopped pitting e our issues against each other, if we came out of our silos um, and, and started really to imagine a holistic solution, what would it look like? So brace yourself, I'm gonna get specific and propose a series of interlocking policies the change may be transformative, but it's anything but vague. We actually know how to do this. It starts with respecting the inherent rights and title of the original caretakers of our countries. Indigenous communities have been at the forefront. Indigenous communities have been at the forefront of protecting rivers, coasts, forests, and lands from out-of-control industrial activity, and they still are from the Alberta tar sands in my country to the ill-fated Carmichael mine in your country. We can all bolster this crucial role and begin to repair our relationship by fully implementing the United Nations Declaration, uh, the United Nation Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which requires that uh, um, that mining companies and, and, and any actors have prior and informed consent before any activity takes place on indigenous lands. Caring for one another and caring for the planet could be the economy's fastest growing sectors. 
Many more people could have higher wage jobs with fewer work hours, leaving us ample time to enjoy our loved ones and flourish in our communities. The latest research out of Stanford University shows us that it's feasible for us to power our, our economies with 100% renewable energy uh, in the next 20 to 30 years. We could have a 100% clean economy here in Australia, where I live in Canada, by mid-century, not by the end of the century, as our leaders are meaningful, meaninglessly pledging. Um, if this is possible, if the technology is there, it means there's no longer an excuse for building any new infrastructure projects that lock us into increased extraction decades into the future. That's why the iron law needs to be when you're in a hole, stop digging. No new coal mines. But more than that, since we are capable of powering our lives without poisoning anyone, the idea, the very idea, that racist notion of the sacrifice zone belongs in the dustbin of history next to manifest destiny. No new infrastructure projects. And this is not just about changing where we get our energy. It's also about changing who profits from the generation of energy, how it is produced, changing our economic system. This is often called energy democracy. What it means is that wherever possible, communities should co collectively control the renewable energy that they are generating, control it democratically, keep the profits in their community to pay for services. And this is what's really been working in Germany, which is now getting 30% of its uh, electricity from renewables, 80% on a sunny day. They have created 400,000 good jobs. Tell that to Tony Abbott, who says that you have to choose between jobs and the environment. Uh, but they've done this by... They've done this by taking back control over their energy grids, um, voting in big cities like Hamburg to reverse the privatization of their energy systems because they believe that the profit motive is standing in their way. Um, and the other principle should be that indigenous people, particularly in countries like, like Australia, should be first to receive public support to own their own clean energy projects. So should communities currently dealing with the heavy health impacts of polluting industrial activities. Yesterday's sacrifice zones need to be transformed into today's super empowerment zones. If we generate power this way, it doesn't merely light our homes, it redistributes wealth, it deepens our democracy, it strengthens our economy, and it starts to heal the wounds in a very tangible way that date back to our country's founding. This is what climate justice looks like. Now, it also means an end to corporate trade deals that give corporation the power to in corporations the power to interfere with our attempts to rebuild our local economies, to regulate corporations, to stop damaging extractive pro uh, 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 projects. You know, under these trade rules, uh, provinces and states that have banned fracking are facing uh, trade challenges. Germany is facing a huge trade challenge for its energy transition, being sued for 4.7 billion euros by a private company that says that this transition, which is the kind of transition that we all need to embrace, is standing in the way of their right to earn profits from coal and nuclear. We simply cannot afford uh, to allow trade to trump the planet. So...
Now, a lot of people say, well, we can't afford it. Um, but we can afford it. We live in a time of unprecedented prosperity and we just need to re uh, release that money. We can do it as Australia has in the past with carbon taxes, with higher royalty rates on extraction, with financial transaction tra uh, taxes. We need to invest in the public sphere on a massive scale to protect ourselves from the heavy weather we've already locked in, but also because um, so much public sector work and so much caregiving work, healthcare, teaching, this is already low carbon work. Artists are low-carbon workers, not just the people who put up solar panels. We need to embrace this. We need to enlarge these parts of our economy. We need to redefine what a green job is. One thing is certain. It is long past time to declare that austerity, which has systematically attacked these low-carbon sectors, uh, to declare that austerity is a fossilized form of thinking that has become a threat to life on Earth. We can pay for this. So once you start talking about this, you know, it raises all kinds of other issues, like the fact that corporations have way too much power over our political system. We need to be talking about campaign finance reform and why elections need to be 100% publicly financed. We need to shut that revolving door between business and government. We need to change the media. You know. I was asked before I came here, um, you know, why it is that climate change denial is so strong in Australia, you know, and the US and the UK, and I gave this elaborate answer about how it was the frontier mentality in countries with a strong colonial history, but then I was thinking about it, I was like, well, there's also something else. Those are all countries where Rupert, Rupert Murdoch owns a huge amount of the media sphere. Um, Now, we need to change everything. But you know what? Everything isn't working for us anyway. If the only problem with our current economic system was this slight matter of rising sea levels, we'd have a real problem. This economic system is failing the vast majority of people on this planet with or without climate change. It is a moral crisis. Climate change supercharges this transformational imperative and tells us that we cannot afford to lose. It puts us on a firm, unyielding, science-based deadline, tells us to get out of our silos and build the movements we know we need. Now, I, um, I want to end with a final thought. I began today's talk by speaking about that harrowing image of abandonment and neglect that has been filling our screens in the past few days of Island Kurdi and his broken family. And I'm sorry that I got emotional. As a mother who desperately misses her three-year-old son, I have found these past days so far from home and family very difficult. But let's also recall that there have been other images and stories too. Tourists fishing refugees out of the water and caring for them. 10,000 people in Iceland volunteering to open their homes to refugees. Spontaneous refugees welcome rallies, protests, petitions from London to Toronto to Melbourne. One does not cancel the other out. We humans are all these things. The people who turn away, choosing not to see what is right in front of us, and the people who reach across vast oceans to help. The people who throw away so casually, and the people who care so much it hurts. We are all of it. Both sides of us are real. But we have a culture that systematically tries to suppress that caring part of ourselves while actively encouraging the careless part. 
So the task is to build a culture that does the opposite, that encourages the caring and discourages the careless. The path is clear, it's exciting, it's difficult as hell, but we must always remember this. Difficult is not the same as impossible. Huge social movements have changed the world before through a magical combination of culture, theory, spirituality, policy, and law. We can do it again. We will be told it's impractical, unrealistic, unserious, making the perfect the enemy of the good, as if perfect didn't leave the station at the Rio Earth Summit more than 20 years ago, all of that. But I wanna end with some words from Nauru, which is not just a prison camp, not just a nation racked with economic and political scandal, it's also a country looking into the abyss. They come from Marlene Moses, who has long served as Nauru's ambassador to the UN. She said this in 2012. She was speaking in her capacity of representing not just Nauru, but all small island nation states. She said this, as leaders, we have a responsibility to fully articulate the risks our people face. If the politics are not favorable to speaking truthfully, then clearly we must devote more energy to changing the politics. Clearly, we must. This is our sacred duty to those our countries have harmed in the past, to those suffering needlessly in the present, and to all those who have a right to a safe and bright future. Now is not the time for small steps. Now is the time for boldness. Now is the time to leap. Thank you. love your enthusiasm and I share it but we have limited amount of time with Naomi and I know that many of you will have questions that you want to ask her thank you so much to Naomi for that wonderful and inspiring address microphones are in the auditorium one and two down here and another two at the top um, just there so if you do have a question for Naomi please come to the microphone immediately we have about 10 minutes um, and, and we'd like to get uh, through some of those questions. Um, can I also just say a quick hello to the people who are watching from another place in the Sydney Opera House, the Utsun Room, um, uh, another sign of our great enthusiasm for what Naomi has to say. With questions, can I ask you to make it brief and a question so that many of us have a con chance to contribute to the conversation? <laughs> Over to here, microphone number one. Uh, hi, Naomi. Um, you spend actually your whole lecture um, talk about um, everything and uh, all the problems uh, you always uh, point. And uh, I agree with you when, when you say you have a, we have a moral problem and uh, we might have to change our ways of uh, economy and politics and um, social uh, works. And uh, you spend a lot of time talking uh, about uh, immigration. And uh, actually, that, that, that's a good point, because when the, the changes in climate do, do come, because they will come, uh, uh, 
no matter whatever we do. Uh, if we, we will actually be open uh, our frontiers and borders to these people, because when the changes come, uh, it doesn't matter if you are man, woman, uh, black, white, or whatever age or anything. Yes, I will, in a second, please. It's a good point. Uh, yes. Okay, I, I will ask my question. My question is, and uh, you said in, in the video in the beginning, you spent six years um, studying or researching uh, this point or whatever, um, and you use climate to advance your ideas about capitalism or, or whatever. Okay. But, uh, okay, my question, uh, what is the science behind it? Because I haven't seen any at all. <laughs> Okay. I, look, guys, um, it's a fair question. I, you know, I made a decision not to spend my talk proving that climate change is real. I think that there have been a lot of really great books and lectures that have done that. Um, you know, I, I do, you know, devote... 97% of climate scientists um, agree that climate change is real and that humans are causing it. There's lots of great stuff you can read, but we're gonna move on. Thanks for your comments. It'll work. Go ahead with your Hello. question. Um, my name's Tully. I just wanted to say thank you so much for everything you do, Naomi. And that was all I was gonna say, but then I thought of a question. And I was like, what do you do in those moments and in your life over, over your life when you felt, oh my God, overwhelming, is this ever going to change, is this idiocracy that we're living in, like what, what are some little things that you sort of recommend or do in those moments? Yeah. I mean, I think the most important thing to do in those moments is exactly what people are doing right now, which is get into rooms filled with other people. Um, because when we are alone, um, it is completely overwhelming. And you know, one of, the, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that part of the problem is that, is that because we have been unwilling to admit that, that really we're dealing with this collision of an ideology and an ecological crisis. We have pro produced solutions that reflect that ideology. Um, so a lot of what we heard in the sort of first phase of the climate movement was you can solve this as a shopper, you know, change your light bulb, drive a hybrid, you know, write a letter, but it really wasn't about building a mass movement. You know, maybe once in a while it was go to a march, but it was not um, that really building that connective tissue. And for me, the only cure for that feeling of being totally overwhelmed, and I have it all the time, is getting into rooms filled with people that are doing the work. And there, you know, this, I, I've called uh, Tony Abbott a, a villain and made headlines in this country, but I've also said, and I hope people heard this, that, um, you know, Australia is filled with far more than its share of climate heroes. There are so many uh, amazing movements in this country, like Lock the Gate, the Bentley Blockade, this historic struggle against Sidani's coal, uh, coal mine. Um, and, uh, and, and so just plug into that. Um, there's, and there is going to be a big People's Climate March timed with this UN summit coming up for anybody who wants to engage with the climate movement, the climate justice movement. Um, there's a huge UN summit coming up uh, at the end of November, and there's going to be a march here in Sydney on November 29th. Um, you can get lots of information from Get Up, from Greenpeace, from you know 
any of these other groups, 350.org, there's the fossil fuel divestment movement. Um, there's a session actually right after this one um, uh, where people are going to be talking about divestment as a tool that they're using at their universities, their local councils. You know, I think Australia has the fastest growing fossil fuel divestment movement in the world. And what all of this is about is, um, you know, people not standing by helplessly just because the Abbott government is taking them in the wrong direction, but filling that political fit vacuum, that failure, keeping the carbon in the ground at source using every tool, uh, you know, in the nonviolent arsenal um, from going after the banks to getting their local councils to divest. So, so much amazing is going on in this country that there's really no excuse for not plugging in. Uh, hello, Naomi. First of all, love the talk uh, and agreed with a lot of what you said. I just want to ask you if you really believe that the tact that you took in that argument is really the right way. You mentioned nothing about the positives of capitalism. Probably half the people in this room are alive because of antibiotics or have been injected with a needle where the metal came from the ground. And I wonder if, when you're talking about we all need to come together and build local communities, if coming towards capitalism as you've done nothing right and you've only destroyed the environment, which I agree with, they have to destroy the environment, maybe a little bit of, okay, this is the system that we designed. The humans aren't really at fault, it's the system at fault. We need to change the system and stop blaming people for just doing what laws actually allow them to do. Well, I, I don't think I am blaming people. I mean, I think the whole point of my analysis is to talk about a system, to bring a systemic analysis to it. I think far too much of the analysis we've heard has blamed, you know, something called human nature and said, we're all just hopelessly greedy people. And I'm, I'm really, I'm sorry if this didn't come across, but I, you know, I believe we have a system that, that rewards and encourages that side of us, which is real, which is in everybody, and discourages the sides of us that, you know, that, that, that expresses solidarity, compassion, that wants to help and care for each other, and we need to change that. So, you know, I don't, this, for me, this is not about vilifying people, and it's also not about saying that there's no role for markets in this. I don't believe that, and you're right that I didn't talk about that in, in my speech, I, and, you know, this was, isn't my usual sort of patter because I decided to spend a lot of time talking about the refugee crisis for obvious reasons. Um, what the argument I'm making is that the market will not fix this for us. We have been telling ourselves that for a very long time because we're so trapped and it's so scary to challenge capitalism. Um, that's not the same as saying that there's no role for markets. Um, it's just that we, you know, that this idea that, you know, we can just set up a cap and trade system or, or put in a carbon tax and then sit back and there's some silver bullet. No, it's going to be a much more planned economy. Yes, we can expand uh, large parts of the economy, but we also have to contract. There's going to have to be higher taxes, more regulation. Um, and there's also going to have to be large parts of our economy that is not controlled by the profit motive. And that's why you have people taking back control over their water, um, their electricity. Um, but that said, you know, I admit that part of the reason why this um, renewable energy uh, um, revolution is happening is because the price of solar is down 70%. And that is a combination of public investment in solar, but also the market working. The problem is that the market in fossil fuels is also booming. Um, and the market in disaster capitalism is also booming. So we can't mistake the fact that there is indeed a green market for that being the solution. Um, I quote 
Kevin Anderson a lot in the book, and you know, one thing Kevin Anderson says, he's a climate scientist at the Tyndall Center, is we have to make a distinction between going more slowly down the wrong road and actually getting on the right road. And because we've waited so long and we now need to cut our emissions so deeply, um, it really does require a swerve, and that kind of swerve is not something the market can manage. So. Question from microphone number four, please. Uh, hi, Naomi. Um, I just want to know, what would you suggest? Is it an alternative to, to capitalism? And would that uh, be similar to what Chomsky calls social libertarianism? Another small question <laughs> from our voting <laughs> audience. <laughs> you know, I, I, um, the truth is, is that I don't believe, I, I don't think there is a, um, you know, a perfect name for the system that we that we want. And I don't think that we are, uh, um, you know, we're certainly not talking about a return to industrial social, socialism, um, although obviously the, the principles that I'm talking about here share much you know, with eco-socialism. Um, but if we look at the in, industrial socialist states that called themselves socialists, we know um, that they were very, very uh, hard on the environment. Mao declared war on nature. It was called the war on nature um, and, and and we know that, that 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 global emissions have gone down at a few different points in history one was the Great Depression when the market crashed in 1929 one was when the Soviet Union collapsed um, in the 1990s and then we also had a significant drop um, after 2008 when the when the financial crisis happened um, so you know both of those systems are, aren't working yes I agree with Chomsky a lot um, and, uh, on the, on what that next model should be and the role of cooperatives um, in that and and um, and new ownership structures like the ones I'm talking about. Germany has, has 800 new energy cooperatives as part of its energy trans transition and we rarely hear about that. Um, so it is it is a, something new and I'm sorry that I don't have like a perfect name for it. But I did write a book called No Logo in my defense. So I'm not that, uh, you know, I'm sort of, I have this, I'm a bit logo averse on this stuff. <laughs> And I'm afraid this is going to have to be our final question from microphone number one. Naomi, you point to Bolivia's government, the Eva Morales-led government of the social movements, as a post-capitalist example. Um, could you reflect a little bit more on that and comment on the revolutionary processes that are unfolding in Latin America, Cuba obviously, um, the beginning stages of that process, but Ecuador as well as Venezuela. Thanks. So, I mean, honestly, I, I, you know, thanks for your question, but I, I actually think that your question is very related to the answer I just gave, which is that, um, which is that many of the governments that you mentioned, Bolivia, Venezuela, and Ecuador, um, really do show that this is not just about, you know, a shift to the left, um, because all of those governments actually have increased their uh, extractive um, processes. And um, it, there's, a, there's a, uh, a phrase that's used in Latin America now by many social movements, and that's progressive extractivism. Extractivismo progresivo. <laughs> um, to describe the fact that despite the fact that, you know, Morales' rhetoric uh, about climate change is 
really fantastic. The rights of Mother Earth, Ecuador, and Bolivia have both enshrined rights of nature in their new constitutions. Both governments find themselves in very active conflict now with indigenous movements that help bring them to power because they haven't found this post-extractive economy. Now, we share responsibility for that. Bolivia is the country that made you know, the most compelling argument for the, the payment of climate debts at the Copenhagen summit in 2009. Um, Korea went to that summit and made the argument that the world should help um, Ecuador to keep the oil in the Yasuni uh, National Park in the, in the Amazon rainforest in underground because it's in all of our interest for that to stay underground and protect this incredibly biologically diverse carbon sequestering rainforest. And why should it only be Ecuador that has contributed very little to the climate crisis? Why should Ecuador bear that financial burden alone? They made a great proposal that the world meet them halfway. They would, um, they would, they would, uh, they asked for the world to defray half the cost of leaving that oil in the ground. They said they would use the money to pay to leapfrog over fossil fuels. Um, and we let them down. I mean, almost no money was put into that fund. But I think we're still waiting, to, is the answer, um, for that um, non-extraction-based new economic system. And it's not that we can't take from the earth. Yes, we all have to take from the earth, but it has to be a process that, that, that where we value regeneration, where we take and we, and we also take care. And this is where I think that that, that sort of the, uh, phrase that the, that's in the encyclical of the throwaway culture was really, really useful. And why I spent you know, so much of my time here today talking about Nauru as an example, as the most sort of potent example of these layers upon layers of the throwaway culture intersecting with one another um, and how we need to shift to a culture based on these core principles of taking care of one another and caring for the planet. Um, and you know, that has to be our beginning point. Um, and just a last point, because I think I'm getting kicked off stage um, in a minute. <laughs> I just want to just um, finally say that, uh, you know, I, re I know there's, there's a great deal of skepticism or some skepticism out there about, about taking on so much all at once, right? Um, you know, sometimes I'm taken aside by some of my environmentalist friends and told, you know, Naomi, climate change was already a big enough problem. Did you have to make it about capitalism, right? Um, <laughs> Now, of course, I make the argument that it's not me who made it about capitalism, um, but, but I, you know, I do understand the argument. Um, that said, I think what we're missing is this really, is, is really an analysis of power. You know, the fossil fuel divestment movement is founded on really an equation. Um, Bill McKibben wrote a, a, an article for Rolling Stone called Do the Math, um, and it was based on some research that had come out of England, um, the car, out of the Carbon Tracker uh, Institute, that showed that the fossil fuel sector has five times more carbon in their proven reserves than is compatible with the two-degree temperature target that our governments are still claiming they're committed to reaching. Even the Abbott government has not officially abandoned the two-degree temperature target, which, by the way, is, you know, it should be lower than that. But, you know, 
taking them supposedly at their word, if we're really going to try to keep temperatures below two degrees, fossil fuel companies have five times more carbon in their proven reserves, and they're still pushing, spending you know, billions of dollars on new exploration uh, to find new pools of carbon. So this is a business model that is really incompatible with life on Earth, which is why it's being targeted for divestment. But those reserves represent trillions of dollars, right? Um, many trillions of dollars, um, you know, by some count, $20 trillion. Now, obviously, those interests are going to fight like hell to protect their business model, to protect their profits. Um, and I think that there's been a way in which um, the discussion about climate change has really not reckoned with just how hard our opponents are fighting. They're highly motivated because they're fighting for their lives. Um, and the lives of their businesses. And what I am arguing is that if we can come up with these intersectional solutions that fight climate change, lower emissions, but also reduce inequality, also tackle racism, um, also create a live, living wage unionized jobs, if we can weave together this holistic vision, then people will fight for that future. They will fight for that future because it's better than their present. It's better than their present. And as far as I know, the only way to win a battle against forces with a huge amount to lose is to build a movement of many more people who have a great deal more to gain. And that's what this is all about. I think it's realistic. That was Naomi Klein urging us to act now for a sustainable future. Coming up next week, Invisibilia's Hannah Rosen talks about the end of men and the rise of women. Ideas at the houses on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and in most good podcast apps, so make sure you subscribe. We'll see you next week.